Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. We are now about eight weeks into our reboot after a hiatus of about five years. Uh, and one of our favorite guests from the old show uh, was our guest today, Victor Davis Hansen. And he is the Senior Fellow of Military History and uh, at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, Professor Emeritus of Classics at California State University, and a noted syndicated uh, columnist and a sought-after frequent guest on a number of television outlets. He joins us today to discuss his book, The Dying Citizen, which is now available in paperback. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. In the introduction to The Dying Citizen, you write that citizenship is not an entitlement. What is then citizenship and what are some of the ways we are required to earn it? Well, it's different than residency. Residency just means you happen to be occupying a space within the borders of a nation state. And citizen means that you're responsible uh, either you acquired it legally or you were born on the soil of the, of the nation state in which you live and you're responsible for self-government. And that means you vote, you can hold office, you can uh, participate in a political campaign. And other than that, those are about all that's left of citizenship. And prior to our contemporary era, citizens were the only people who could leave their borders and re-enter uh, without having to have permission, but we see that's been eroded. They were the only people that served in the military, that's eroded. And I'm afraid to say that they're probably, it's probably eroded as well that people uh, who are mere residents can now vote in many places. I know in school board elections in San Francisco, if you're an, an alien, you can vote whether legal or not. And the same thing is true in participating in a political campaign as we saw from Christopher Steele, who was a British subject who worked as a contractor for the Clinton campaign in 2016. So the, a lot of the distinctions have eroded is what I'm trying to say. You state, quote, a sign of democratic sclerosis is a loss of confidence in the integrity of voting, end quote. Polls showed that between 70 and 80 percent of Republicans believe that there was fraud in the 2020 election. There are a similar, a similar number of Democrats who believe that Hillary Clinton had the 2016 election stolen from her. If these numbers uh, portend ill for our system of de uh, democratic representation uh, as part of our constitutional republic, then why is there such resistance to voter ID and other means to restore faith in the uh, soundness of our voting system? Well, most of the resistance comes from the left, and I think they feel that they don't have confidence in winning the support of 51% of the people. By that, I mean they advance all of their proposals, whether it's open borders or the new Green New Deal or these inflationary economic policies through institutional support. That means they have the they're fused with the traditional media, network news, Silicon Valley, social media, professional sports, Hollywood, the universities, K through 12, corporate boardroom, Wall Street. 
and they exercise influence by the power of messaging and communications, money in those institutions. But every two years we have a midterm, every four years we have a presidential election. And on those occasions, all of those institutions don't matter because the people can vote. And so I think what they want to do at least is to expand the franchise so that there's no really audit of who votes and who doesn't vote. And so whether that means a felon or a person who votes two or three times or a person who's not here legally, in their view, that is okay because it's a representation of the quote unquote people. And so what what's we've had what the result of that is the big war right now is in 2020, only about 30 to 35 percent of the people voted on election day. 65 to 70 percent, over 100 million people either voted uh, far in advance of the election uh, by go taking an early ballot or they had mail-in ballots. We don't even use the word absentee ballot anymore. And the error rate in many of the states, I think the majority of the states went from a typical three to 5% of the ballots being rejected due to they don't match registrar's uh, list of voters or they don't have the right address or they didn't sign their name or their name is inaccurate or they only gave a partial name. All of those were under the cloak of COVID acceptable. And so the error rate went down to about 0 0.3 to 0.5% of the ballots. So think of that, you almost triple or quadruple the number of ballots but the error rate by a magnitude of 10 goes down. And that, that translates into six to seven to eight million ballots that otherwise would have been rejected. So I think that paradigm has fascinated or captivated the left. And they're going to push for as many mail-in ballots and early ballots as possible because it's very hard to scrutinize them compared to showing up on election day, showing an ID and then voting. You're absolutely right about that. One of the stories that came out of since our last conversation, I have moved from California. I now reside in Texas. And one of the big stories here right now is that Planned Parenthood has mailed out a bunch of ballots. And, you know, all of these are dead people. Uh, they, they tend to vote uh, Democrat for some odd reason that that statistic is very high also yeah, yeah. Dead, voting for Republic uh, for Democrats. But yeah, so you're absolutely right. That, that is yeah. absolutely an and issue. It, that to be it, it really warps the campaign process because then when you take, for example, 2020, we had two presidential debates and the second debate I thought Trump did very poorly in the first, but pretty well in the second and 60 million people had already voted. And when John Fetterman delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed the debate in Pennsylvania that's coming up, he will, he's doing that because a large percentage of, of the electorate is voting right now. So it really truncates or warps the election. And uh, I think you're going to see the Democrats uh, resist any, any effort to go back to the idea of an election day ballot. They just feel that they don't have the support on election day. They don't have a, a transparent support on a transparent ballot. So they they rely on, you know, what we're talking about, a very unaudited, inexact method of balloting. And people can, I, I have children that are, have long moved away. They're in their thirties and I still get their ballots at my home. And I think everybody know, has that phenomenon that you have people that used to live at your house 
or you moved away or somebody calls you and say, you know, I got your ballot here in California, as you know, 100,000 ballots the DMV couldn't account for. They mailed out to people who were non-citizens. Yeah, that's right. Uh, now, how has the broadening of American citizenry to include minorities, women, and uh, non-property holders affected the esteem of citizenry? citizenry? Well, the citizenry in the United States is always, I mean, it's not ever, it's always been in a period of, you know, by leap, by fits and starts of expanding. And so the restrictions on the number of people who can vote or how they vote. And originally it was property owners, and then it was people who were non-property owners as well. And then after the Civil War and the end of Jim Crow, the struggle to include black people and of course, in some states in the North, they were always able to vote. But in the South, particularly in the border states, that wasn't true. And then that expansion and women in the 1920s as well, blacks in the 1960s finally got Civil Rights Act, women in the 1920s and 18-year-olds. So the idea is that the, the electorate is always expanding in a democracy. And I think the left now has sort of reached the area where by statute, everybody who's a citizen can vote and they find that it's still, they still want to expand it. And so they're looking at people who are mere residents, as I said, that should be able to vote. And I think they're, I think Nancy Pelosi said she thought she should have people voting who were 16 years old. And there's a large uh, movement to have people who are felons uh, voting. But again, the idea is that the, the current citizenry that votes that the left feels that it's not predictable enough and it's too unpredictable and mercurial and so they want to find ways to to alleviate that problem because their agenda it's not it's contrary to human natures in a, in a nutshell and they feel that they're never going to win elections if it's transparent and and everybody shows up on election day so that's what they fear the most that's absolutely awful because it it really is uh, counterintuitive to to what the foundational principles, the whole system of of our uh, electorate system is. So that doesn't seem fair, if you will. Uh, or yeah, I think I, I agree. I, I think what we're seeing is that. In the 21st century, especially, the left looks at the Constitution and the way that the, our system is set up, and they don't like it because it's right. not a radical democracy. It's a constitutional republic. So you can see that when they either seize power and they don't want to give it up, or they're out of power and they want to gain it, they're demanding structural changes. They want to get rid of the 180-year filibuster, even though Barack Obama tried to filibuster, just to take one example, Justice Alito's confirmation. And the left has used the filibuster all the time. But when they're in power and they do not want to be obstructed, they want to get rid of it. They want to get rid of the electoral, electoral college. college. Yeah. Even though if we had this conversation 10 years ago, they would brag to us that the blue wall was indestructible. And before the, the elections even started, they had Illinois, New York, and California locked up. They were very proud of that. They want to get rid of uh, the 160-year-old 
nine-person Supreme Court. Once they lost the old Warren Court, the liberal majority, then they wanted to change the rule. They want to get rid of 50 state union because they want to bring in four more senators. I could go on and on, but there's a sense that because the left fields are morally superior to all of us, then they feel that any means necessary to perpetuate that agenda are, are justified. And that's how they always have throughout history that they say that they're the party of radical mandated equality as they define equality. And therefore any, any means necessary or permissible. Yeah. Why is the middle class so important to a democracy when the lower classes are greater in number and the elite class is normally greater in power and wealth? And what are the ramifications if our middle class continues to shrink? It's a good question. I, I think historically, if you, we would go to Plato or Aristotle or Xenophon or even Machiavelli and other people, that, and Tocqueville especially, the consensus is that when you have a very asymmetrical or, or, you know, divided, bifurcated citizenry with just two classes, and one of them is the very wealthy, and they're very powerful, then they use their influence to affect government, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg putting $419 million into pre-selected precincts in the 2020 election to really absorb the work of the state registrars or it's George Soros to fund particular county or city attorneys to laws and essentially they have too much power is what the condition the traditional worry is and then when you have a large the other alternative is you have no middle class but you just have a large peasantry then they for survival are dependent on a government subsidy or largesse from the wealthy, either way, then you don't have independent voices that audit the government. But when you have a large middle class and they're economically autonomous, they own their home, they don't look for the, to the wealth, they don't cater or suck up to the wealthy for money, they don't need the government to support them, they make decisions based on empirical, rational thought as far as government, then you have a, a stable society. And I think under Marxist doctrine, the middle class is always the bourgeoisie enemy because, because of what I just said. They want a large proletariat peasant class, and then they want to use that against uh, this small wealthy class and this perpetual class warfare. And then they themselves, as revolutionaries, whether Lenin or Robespierre, whoever these revolutionaries are, are in our time, the hard left, they're always exempt from the consequences of their ideology. So they never put their kids in public schools. They never, they never take the bus. They fly private jet when they want to go somewhere. They never turn their thermostats down. They have uh, heated pools in the winter. They love teachers unions. They hate charter schools, but they would never put their kid in a public school. That's, They'd they like to go have, to yeah. the French Laundry and have a three hundred and fifty dollar lunch during a pandemic. Yeah, day. and they and they feel that their only remorse is they got caught. But if you ask Gavin Newsom about that privately, he would see nothing wrong with it. And John Kerry said it the best. I mean, he said he needed to have a private jet so he could get to places more quickly and more effectively for global warming agendas. <laughs> 
Everybody has that argument, of course. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. <laughs> Uh, now, surveys indicate that the United States is quickly becoming a mixed race nation. The yeah. New York Times, for example, reported that in 2021, uh, we saw an increase of 127% in non-Hispanic Americans who identify as multiracial in just the last decade. If we are marrying interracially and having multiracial or biracial children in such high numbers, why then do you express such concern over tribalism? It's, it's very easy that when a society has people who their superficial appearance, forget the historical background of all this, but just in the present, becomes essential to their persona rather than incidental, and they identify with a particular group, then their worldview, how they vote, who they come in contact with is going to be based on people like them. So if you go to the Middle East today and you see oil-rich Libya, and I've been to every country in the Middle East, I always ask people in government the same question, why doesn't this society work? Why is it dysfunctional? They always say the same thing. We hire our first cousin, member of our mm -hmm. tribe, over anybody else. And so when you look at societies that do that, like the former Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia, uh, or what happened in Iraq, they don't work. And when one particular group goes tribal, then what happens, it's like nuclear proliferation. The next, the next country thinks for their survival or the next tribe says, I'm gonna go tribal. And so here in the United States, we had this idea of the melting pot. It was an imperfect idea, but it was an ideal that through the process of integration, assimilation and intermarriage, then people would not their, their main culture, they would be not a multicultural, they'd be a multiracial state. And I don't think we ever realize how rare that is in, in history. I mean, today, I think the only two big multiracial democracies are India and Brazil, and neither one works very well. And in, in the past, when you had multiracial nations, like the Habsburg Empire or the Soviet Union or the Ottoman Empire, they required a degree of just coercion that isn't incompatible with democracy. So uh, that's our my worry. And I think what's happened is when people start identifying first, it's nothing wrong with saying, you know, we're enriched by Italian food or soul music or uh, haiku poetry from different cultures. But when you when you don't when you don't accept the core values of constitutional government or free market economics or private property or individual freedom or what made the United States unique, then you've got a real problem. And so when you start questioning that as a tribal group, and then there's, we have so many tribal, tribal groups. And I think the ultimate expression, you can just look what happened in Los Angeles this week when yes. an old, old tape resurfaced. And here you had an unfiltered uh, conversation. <laughs> what was unique was that Mr. Cedillo or Ms. Martinez or the people involved were not minor characters. These were the heralded future leaders of the Latino movement. So they described themselves and of California themselves. And what was the conversation about? It was about how we're going to divide up the spoils of Los Angeles governance based on tribal affiliations and why everybody that was not in their tribe, whether it was a white person, a black person, a gay person, or a Oaxacan immigrant were inferior to them, essentially. 
because I, I say that because when you use the word monkey or you call a white a homosexual a bitch or you say Oaxacans can't, or don't know how to wa walk without shoes or they're ugly, then you, you're really in a tribal racial chauvinistic mindset. And so what would be the reaction of all the other groups when they hear that? The other the first human reaction is, well, we better organize to make sure that they don't do that to us. And that's a pre-modern idea. And you can go through history and find where before the nation state, there was a tribal state. And the, and the great accomplishment of the, the nation state was to have various tribes surrender their prime, primary identity to the collective, to the idea of being, in our case, of being an American. It's very hard to do. We act like it's it's second nature, but it almost never happens. But the United States was the only country that I know of where we did our best and we were working sometimes two steps ahead, one step back, three steps, but we were working at it. And now I think I'm not very optimistic. I think we've gone tribal. And I can tell, uh, I live in a, a, a community that it's 95% Mexican-American. And uh, when I, I've lived here my whole life. So when I go to the food market and I see a rare white person and I don't see very many, you know what they do now? They wave at me and smile and say, hi, it's complete strangers. And what they're communicating to me is that, uh, we're of the same tribe now we're beleaguered and we're of the same tribe. And I never, I never saw that before. That was something that Martin Luther King said that we're not supposed to do. He said, we're worried about the content of our character, not the color of our skin. And I understand historical prejudices and things like that, but here we are in the 21st century. And if we retribalize, it's, it's not going to be pretty. It really isn't. Absolutely right. What is oikophobia and why do you argue that the West suffers from it? It's always suffered because it's, a self-critical. It's the only uh, civilization in the world that's self-critical. By that, I mean it encourages free speech, free expression. And because it's a self-governed society, people that are in government have to account for the people, and the people are often very critical. But the problem is that when you combine free market capitalism and private property that's the economic basis of Western civilization with freedom of, of expression and constitutional government, you create an enormous amount of prosperity and you can see it in the United States. You can see it in Europe compared to other systems and you, you create a large, a great amount of affluence and leisure and for that to function and not become what the Romans called decadence, then you need, bridles on the appetites. It can be shame. It can be your family reputation. It can be your religion. It can be pride in your community. But when those are unfettered, then people, they start to become unrealistic. And what, I'll give you some concrete examples. So it was very hard to achieve complete energy independence. And we did that from 2017 to 2021. And then we got used to it. And we said, this is almost our birthright. So Joe Biden on the campaign said, I'm going to end all fossil fuels. He didn't even realize what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And people in Europe were the same. They were so prosperous. Oh, we don't really need nuclear plants. We don't need coal. We don't need oil burning. We don't need natural gas. 
so they start to critique the very basis that made them wealthy or they start to assume that uh, constitutional government is is their birthright and it's, it's going to be there all the time. And they cr criticize, criticize, criticize everything about their their system, their culture, their civilization as if each year it has to become better and better and it has to be perfect to be even good. And they use the, the, the standards of morality of the present to go back in the past and judge a pre-industrial society when people you know, died at 40 from physical ailments that today are minor. And so it's that idea that we've got all of the, in, in our case, I think it's mostly a bi-coastal, very wealthy elite that became very prosperous under globalization. We've never seen wealth like the six, seven trillion dollars of market capitalization in Silicon Valley. Yes. And I work there, so I can tell you when I see these young people, 30, 40, that are making a million, two million, three million a year, and they're driving Mercedes and BMWs, and they're paying two, three, five million for a home, and then they're very left wing, and they're very critical of their society. It's almost staggering the disconnect that the very system that allowed them to be so wealthy and to be so free, they adopt a series of political positions that trashes that, it criticizes it, says it's toxic. That's so absolutely right. I mean, having lived in Silicon Valley, I mean, I was born in the Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco and lived in the Bay Area for, I just moved to Texas yeah. two years ago. So yeah, 56 years I lived in California. So yeah, that's absolutely the mentality. And we're seeing it, you know, elsewhere in this whole progressive movement. When we see uh, the takeover uh, chop or Chaz or whatever you want to call it uh, up North, you know, they're, they're uh, documenting the whole thing on their iPhones and their iPads and all of these things, you know, uh, and, and, uh, breaking the windows of Starbucks where they spend most of their days just, you know, using the free internet. So it, it's, you're right. That disconnect is just, it, it is. And they, that's why I think it's very important at this stage for people to be reconnected to people who work with their hands or you can really see it when we excuse that one we're, we're in the process of excusing $500 billion of student loans, but so many people, half the people, during COVID especially, we, we, we rediscovered that they were waitresses, they were carpenters, they were electricians, they were bus drivers, they were Amazon delivery people, and they made the country go. But if you don't have any appreciation for where your food comes from or who built your home, then you, then you really get disconnected and you live in la-la land. And I think that's, a, that's, when you look at the left, you can really see it. If we had this conversation 50 years ago and we looked at the Fortune 400, we'd, we'd learn that, one, the fortunes and even adjusted for inflation were just a fraction of what they are now to be on the Fortune 400. And then they were all in industries like agriculture or transportation or construction or manufacturing and now or oil. Now they're social media, regular media, law, insurance, finance, investment, hedge funds. And that those types of enormous uh, amounts of money are disconnected from, from reality. And you can really see it in these, when people are like that, um, almost every issue becomes theoretical. So when you see these cities like Minneapolis or Baltimore or Portland or Seattle, these very, very wealthy people, 
they have all of these, I don't know, I guess you'd call them utopian ideas, but in the, in the concrete, there, there's no necessity, there's no impulse to live out your, your ideology. It's all just a fantasy. It's a way of saying, you know what, I'm a, I'm a segregationist. I live in a very wealthy enclave. I don't want to put my kids in the public schools. I don't want to go out to dinner with that guy. I don't want to be around them. So I'm going to project a whole theoretical, empathetic, caring, even though if I think about it, it's the worst thing in the world for everybody. We just and saw so, that in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. And you can see yeah. it in Martha's Vineyard. They didn't, they had all those signs, you know, we support illegal this this house supports illegal immigration and then as soon as you see illegal immigrants they they went berserk and i think that's that's i think a lot of people are going to see that the blue state model especially the blue state municipal model doesn't it's not just that it doesn't work it's almost neo-confederate by that i mean it is obsessed with race it's obsessed with segregation it's accepted with nullifying laws the way the old confederacy started out and i think a lot of people are going to say for their for their family's future for their future they can't live there anymore because it's a really a toxic culture i know for minorities if you were just come from another planet and you looked at the abortion rate and then you would see the demand for abortion among these blue city left-wing officials to the last day of of birth almost you think that wow they it's almost genocidal or you would if you see how they live you would say wow this society is more segregated than was mobile in 1860 or if you looked at the jenny coefficient of asymmetrical wealth and you look at new york or illinois or, or california there's a, a the greatest distance between wealthy people and poor people and the fewest percentage of people that belong to the middle class as defined by the ability to buy a home or to afford fuel or energy or food. And so there, I think a lot of that's behind this migration that a lot of middle and lower middle and even poor people realize that you can't, you have no future in the Bay Area. You have no future in Minneapolis. You have no future in Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Baltimore, and you better go to Arizona or even Mississippi or Alabama or tech, any of those countries. That's so ironic because Isn't it? we're seeing people go to the old Confederacy because they feel there's more opportunity and there's less emphasis on race and distinction and privilege than there is in the old union. That's so interesting. You paint an alarming picture of an administrative state that is as dedicated to furthering the progressive agenda as much as any Democratic politician or, or an MSNBC host, um, but is less accountable to the average American with fewer checks on their power. How does this affect our status as citizens? Well, what the left has done getting back to the earlier discussion that they don't have confidence for all their talk about democracy. They don't have confidence in putting a transparent agenda as they, their agenda before the electorate and say, do you like it? Vote for it. So what they've done is in addition to capturing these institutions, which we discussed, they have weaponized or I guess politicized the permanent state 
I know that's an abused term, the administrative state, but if you look at all of these institutions that used to be either nonpartisan or traditionalists, the DOJ, the IRS, the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, they are now basically acting along with the media on behalf of the progressive agenda. So we've had four FBI directors in the last 20 years. Christopher Ray right now is sending not just the, the Mar-a-Lago raid, but he's going to school board meetings. He's yes. uh, going after enemies of Joe Biden, perceived enemies. He puts Peter Navarro in leg irons. He roused James O'Keefe at four in the morning, Project Veritas. I could go on. He goes after Christian uh, protesters and at their home yes. in a way that's trying to shock and scare them is what I'm saying. There's informants uh, at school board meetings. And then you look at his predecessor, Andrew McCabe, he, he lied four times to a federal investigator with yes. impunity. And his, his predecessor, James Comey, said in 245 occasions he couldn't remember under oath. And then yeah. he, he leaked a confidential memo about a private conversation with the president. And then we go to Robert Mueller, and after 20 months and $40 million, the two elements of his entire investigations that prompted it, the Fusion GBS Oppo Research and the Steele dossier. Mr. Mueller, would you please explain the role of these? I have no idea what they were. And so, and then you look at the CIA, John Brennan lies under oath uh, twice to Congress, James Clapper, head of national intelligence. We go to the IRS, uh, Lois Lerner. I think Merrick Garland's DOJ is kind of a retrieval service for the Biden family, they, whether it's a laptop that they try to hide Yes. they go after Ashley Biden's uh, embarrassing. So that's what's very scary. And I didn't even get into the Pentagon where you have somebody like Mark Milley who contacts his Chinese counterpart because as a self-appointed psychiatrist, he feels that the commander in chief may be unstable. And in his medical opinion, if Donald Trump says something that he finds disturbing, he's going to call up communist Chinese head of the People's Liberation Army. So all of these people are freelancing in a particular way that uh, insidiously are becoming arms of the progressive movement and they're weaponized. And when you hear that they're going to have 87,000 yes. agents, uh, they're going to go after the middle class. They're not going to go after wealthy people. They're, the people they hate the most are the, the upper and middle class entrepreneur, small business person. And notice that it's not just that they take over... Uh, the 2 million federal workforces, they also pick and choose which ones to erode. So they have centered on the border patrol ICE and they yes. have really rendered it inert and it doesn't even function anymore. They haven't, there isn't, it's not that the border is porous, there is no border for all practical purposes. So in your estimation, is there hope for our country? Is there hope for the citizenry? How do we fix this? How do we correct course? Well, I think there's going to be a big correction. I'm maybe in the minority in November, but I think yes. they're going to win 40 or 45 seats. And I think they're going to end up with 52 senators and that will stop a lot of it. It won't mean that you'll have a positive agenda. All it will be, do is say, we can't, we can't go down this road anymore. And, Joe Biden will have to rule by executive order. And so that's a start, but it's, it's, um, 
it's very difficult. And I think one of the things we're starting to see is that a lot of people are, I don't know what the word is, dropping out, but they're not participating in the, in the left-wing project. They don't go, I don't think you or I say, what's the latest Hollywood movie? I got to go out of the theater and watch it or download right. it. Or we say, uh, I'm going to go, where's uh, Madonna's or right. video? They don't, they don't, watch that they don't they don't want any politicalization of sports they've tuned out of that they've they're not they don't read the new york times or washington post i think a lot of us i haven't seen cbs news i think in 20 years yeah same here and, and so that's a good idea that a lot of people are and so paypal the i'll give you another paypal the other yeah. day said well, if we find speech we don't like or quote unquote is offensive, we're going to find the person $2,500 from their account. Well, that was confiscatory. And, and all of a sudden, people in droves said, I'm not going to use it. And they their stock went down by $6 billion. Yes. And then they quickly said, oh, we didn't mean that. And so I think that's the all of these things show a counterculture, a pushback. And a lot of people, it won't stop, though to finally answer your question until a person like you or me or the average person just says, you can say whatever you want. You can call me any name, but if I'm convinced I'm just acting in my role as a citizen, I'm not going to apologize and I'm not going to be canceled. And I like Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. And I think she's a good example. And so a lot of people are just saying, do your worst and I'll do my best and let's see who wins because I don't think they have uh, majority support. And I work at a university and I can tell you that there is one reality where everybody in public says something, but when you talk to even liberal professors or liberal staffers, they know that the whole thing can't go on like it is. It's just, it's not working. You can't have a university where just the mere accusation of sexual assault means that a person has no fifth amendment, first amendment, sixth amendment rights. And, or you can't have a free speech area in which you can say anything you want on the left, but on the, the if anybody says that, you know, they question abortion or they're, they're religious and then you can't speak or a professor who might say that it will be silence, even though people can call for revolution on the left, violent revolution. So I think a lot of people are starting to see that the left is way overreached and there's going to be a big correction. The question is how much damage has been done to the country because it's not recent and how can it be remedied? And I don't know. That's a, that's a harder question because we're so affluent and leisured, even in our recessionary eras that it, how do you restore nuclear family? How do you restore traditions? How do you destroy, how do you restore a mentality that says to the citizenry, we're constantly doing our best and we're better than the alternative and that's good enough we're not perfect but nobody's perfect and we're trying to be good and that humility is very hard to inculcate in this social media computer driven instant communication leisured society that's absolutely right if you're just joining us our guest this segment has been victor davis hansen he's here to discuss the dying citizen which is now in paperback wherever books are sold how can our listeners follow and find you online? 
Uh, I have a website, Victor Hansen, H-A-N-S-O-N.com, and I have my weekly podcast there and column and things, so it's sort of a clearinghouse. I write for American Greatness. I have a syndicated column for the Chicago Tribune, Tri Tribune Media Services every week, So, but they're all aggregated at the, my website. Excellent. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Now comes that part of the show where we bring in DK. DK, come on in. Hola. Well, hello. How are you? Well, good. How are you? I'm doing all right. So what did you take away from that? Oh, that was a great interview. And I wanted to take away two things. Uh, one was missing more in the book. It's about the, uh, the underreported the under statistic of illegal immigrant crime because we saw in Florida recently... Uh, DeSantis went on an angry rant about the number of illegals who are looting homes post-Hurricane Ian. And there was, an, there was another story in Texas and late August when MS-13, who was this really vicious gang in El Salvador, I remember them when I lived in New York, they were found to be uh, luring young girls over the internet to certain areas, and sometimes those young girls would end up decapitated. So they're a very vicious street gang. Um, Donald Trump called them at one point animals, and that started Nancy Pelosi's response that they had the spark of divinity within them. Yes. Uh, so that's MS-13. Anyway, in Texas, about a, a month or so ago, they were found to be... Uh, conducting racketeering, which involved murder and attempted murder. So this, the specter of illegal limited crime is being underreported. For example, we just saw maybe less than a few weeks ago, Venezuela was discovered to be opening their prison cells full of murderers and rapists and, you know, the type of people you expect to be in, in a prison cell and directed them towards our southern border. So yeah. I think other nations are doing that. So it's leading to a high rate of crime among illegals that's getting underreported. I see here, this is all from uh, Victor David Hansen's book, over 800,000 illegal aliens with criminal records and about 700,000 of these have felonies. Over 10,000 of these illegal aliens were supposed to be deported by ICE, but they were released because they were in sanctuary cities who don't seem to want them back. And this is another interesting stat. In 2014, two-thirds of all outstanding felony warrants in L.A., as well as 95% of those with outstanding murder warrants, involved illegal aliens. So it's... Uh, it's a big problem, and I'm glad Hanson mentioned it, and I'm starting to hear other people mention it. So these are model citizens, then? Yeah, they're not all, yeah. turns out they're all not here to pick out grapes and mow our lawns for us. And <laughs> Don't tell Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> and their kids <laughs> She'll be disappointed. <laughs> and their kids all don't become high school valedictorians, so. You know what I find uh, interesting about that is that let's take Chicago, for example, uh, where it has an exorbitant crime rate every weekend, you know, um, and somehow 
you know, uh, posted signs about uh, guns being illegal, don't bring guns here, whatever, you know, criminals don't seem to obey those signs or obey laws, you know? So I, I find it very interesting that, you know, we're, we're seeing this problem. Yeah, who knew that people who enter a country illegally are prone to doing things illegally? So who would have guessed? <laughs> guessed. I also want to talk about something else that's been making the news recently. It's, it's the topic of uh, cultural appropriation. I want to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I kind of go back and forth about that. Um, and I think, you know, as you well know, uh, throughout the history of ACONS, as we've had conversations on the page on Facebook. Um, it's a very emotional topic for some people. Some people feel guilt about what ancestors may have done. Um, and so you can't have a rational conversation about race without people getting, well, why can't you people leave that alone? Why can't you people, you know? Um, and so it's very hard to have some of these discussions. Um, and I remember there was a big kerfuffle, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, uh, there was a girl who was Caucasian who wore a dress to prom or homecoming that was from, that was said to be of another culture. It had a high collar and it was uh, normally worn by people of a different ethnic persuasion. And it just blew up the internet, you know, or, you know, people wearing uh, dreadlocks or, you know, uh, hair conversation, you know, the whole conversation about hair at work. Um, and I know I had one of my children who had um, twists in his hair um, and, you know, conversation, uh, there were comments made about the length of his hair or whatever it is. So, I mean, there are some things that, that I guess I do bristle about in terms of, I think if your hair is clean and, you know, whatever, you should be able to wear it however you want to wear it. Um, and if it represents your culture, I, I think you should be able to do that. But in terms of cultural appropriation, um, this takes a lot of work. <laughs> uh, you know, this takes a lot of work uh, and a lot of product. Uh, and my daughter will tell you the same. And my sons will probably tell you the same. Um, and so I Why guess- Why everyone just doesn't shave it is beyond me. <laughs> you know, I guess I-, I, I when you see like, you know, the whole thing about Bo Derek in 10, many, many years ago, you know, with the cornrows and I've seen people who are not African-American who wear uh, braids and cornrows and those kinds of things. And the hair kind of sticks out or whatever. Um, it doesn't look exactly right. Um, but, you know, I know that people are trying to uh, do something that's convenient for them. I know that, you know, imitation is a source of flattery for some people. People, you know, imitate um, clothing, music, whatever, but we do it too. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many black women I've seen that dye their hair blonde um, or those sorts of things. Um, so I don't know. Sometimes I think it goes a little too far um, with uh, some of the padding maybe in the caboose that I see of people trying to uh, have a certain body type that they think that, you know, someone else has. I don't know. I, I don't know where the line is really to tell you the truth. I think that um, we should all, as Victor Davis Hansen said, you know, we are a melting pot. We are many cultures that are coming together 
Um, there are some things, I guess, that I'm a little funny about. Uh, you and I, <laughs> these are the conversations that you and I have. I'm going to let people in on something. You know, there was a meme, I don't know, a couple years ago. And it was something, I think it was around uh, one of the holidays. I think it was Thanksgiving and people were talking about having collard greens. And it was a sign up at like a Whole Foods store. And it was talking about, you know, with a drizzling of this and it had pine nuts in it or something like that. And I'm like, you know, come <laughs> on. So in that sense, you know, we're putting uh, raisins in in uh, potato salad or some of those kinds of things. I don't know. There's just certain things that I guess I wish people would leave alone because they don't do it well, uh, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's just par for the course. What's your take on it? What do you think? Well, I have some thoughts, but since you mentioned uh, hair, I think we have a video about uh, hair that went viral uh, a couple years ago. If you can show that now. You're saying that I can't work, have a hairstyle because of your culture? Yeah. Why? Because of my culture. Do you know what it was in Egyptian culture? Are you Egyptian? No, nah, bro, I'm not. Are you Egyptian? No, no but it doesn't you, matter. Wait, where's Egypt? You know what, girl? Dude, go. You have no oh, right to tell me Ooh, what I can not get. Huh? Where are you Yo, girl, stop touching me right now. Yo, girl, stop touching me right now. Come back. Get off hey. of me. Come back, come back, come back. You put your hands on me, no more. Like, you're going to make some shit because of what the hair I have? That's no reason, yo. I don't need your disrespect. I don't need your disrespect. Why are you filming this? Everyone's safety. So, um... The thing about cultural appropriation is that uh, it's hard to define what your culture is. I mean, I'm a black guy. I lived in New York and New Are Jersey. You? Really? <laughs> and I've lived in these two places exclusively. So if I wore a daishiki, for example, is that my culture? I've never been to Africa. Am I appropriating an African's culture or is, is it okay because I'm black? Conversely, if a white person lived in Africa. I mean, there are some whites who born and raised in Africa and they wore a daishiki. Are they committing a cultural appropriation? So it's really hard to know where to draw the line. Um, one thing I could say for certain is that you shouldn't wear someone else's religious artifacts as a costume, yeah. you know, but that's, but that's obvious. But everything else, go ahead. Well, you know, we, we live in a society that's not only uh, multiracial, but it's multicultural. So, you know, there are some girls that uh, live in the hood uh, that are not black. But boy, if you weren't looking at them, you know, and there's a whole conversation about that, you know, like, well, but you can't talk the way that we do or whatever. But if that's your culture, I mean, if that's where you've lived and grown up and you understand the culture, I mean, America is it is a melting pot and we do have pockets of culture. I mean, Victor Davis Hanson talked about he lives in um, a, a neighborhood that's primarily Mexican-American. So, you know, um, we we live in these uh, areas that tend to have a number of different cultures. And so I, I think there's a piece of it that is, um, acknowledging and honoring other cultures and wanting to, um, be able to bring some of that in, um, 
people have better ways of doing things or, or whatever it is. Um, I think, like you said, though, I think the, 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 the key to it is maybe, I don't know, checking with other people to see how they feel about that. Um, you know, I know that there was a big conversation, not only in the black community, but also in the Asian community about touching someone's head and touching someone's hair. That's kind of taboo. I don't like people to touch my hair. Um, you know, um, but it's always kind of that, oh, your hair is so different. The texture is so different. Um, you know, well, maybe you've got the hair that's got a different texture. Maybe your hair is a little different, you know? So, um, I, I think that, um, Seeking permission first and asking questions. Sesame Street always used to say the best way to find out information is to ask questions. If somebody looks different from you or has a different culture or tradition than you do, ask questions, get more information. I wouldn't jump straight to dressing like that person or, or, or doing whatever. Well, I'll say one more thing. Uh, there's a funny story about cultural appropriation involving sports. It was uh, Jeremy Lin who for a while was a very popular Asian, I think it was an Asian American basketball player. And he was raked over the coals by a lot of black NBA players because one day Jeremy Lin decided to wear, I think he, think he wore braids like a corn roll. And people were disgusted by it because of course being an Asian, he was not allowed to culturally appropriate black hair. So one person went after uh, Jeremy Lin on Twitter, I think, a black NBA player, and Jeremy Lin responded, so don't you have uh, Asian character tattoos all over your arm? And so I think Jeremy Lin won the debate. So cultural, appropri cultural appropriation, I think we all do it. 95% of it is respectful. It's not meant to denigrate another culture. I mean, white people wear lip liner, I didn't know that was a black thing. I didn't know that was either until you mentioned it. So. You know, white people can wear, they can listen to rap. Black people can play golf. You know, <laughs> everything, we can, all, we can all eat at any restaurant we want. We can make the kind of foods we want. If I want to make tacos or egg rolls or whatever, it's not meant to be harmed. So I think we agree. I think too much is being made of it. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of African American Conservatives. If you like what you're seeing, we hope that you will go to anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S and uh, subscribe to your uh, to our podcast on any of your favorite podcast providers. You can also go to brightnews.com. Uh, we are a part of Bright News Media. Find us on YouTube and make sure you click like follow, subscribe, all those buttons. And if you feel so led at anchor.com, there is a button where you can support our program financially. Once again, I'm Marie. I'm DK. This is African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. <laughs>